Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and joining us today is Andrea Schaumann of Fortress Information Security to discuss something we have spent a lot of time talking about on this program over the years, which is risk and risk mitigation. Andrea, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, it is a pleasure having you on the program. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Uh, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Leonardo DRS, GE Aerospace and Helicon Chemical sponsored our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association annual aerospace warfare symposium our coverage at south by southwest was sponsored by bell and leonardo drs and our coverage of the navy league's annual sea airspace conference and trade show next week will be brought to you by hii leonardo drs and helicon uh, chemical andrea thanks uh, so much again uh, for joining us um you and i have talked a lot uh, over the years about risk and risk mitigation uh, and the right approach and, and really almost everything you know, about national security, but including cybersecurity is risk mitigation. Um, we now have a national cyber strategy that that talks about, uh, you know, sort of a national risk mitigation strategy. Um, that document also urges deeper public-private partnerships, and I want to get to that in a minute. From your standpoint, what what is the right approach to thinking about risk? Because how you think about it, is how you derive the strategies to best mitigate it. When you think about the national cybersecurity strategy, they explicitly say that the goal is to rebalance the responsibility um, by shifting the burden away from um, smaller agencies and individuals who maybe don't have the power to, um, to draft and create and implement a strong strategy and shifting that into um, organizations and, and agencies that are more capable and better positioned uh, to reduce risk. And then hopefully those best practices will filter down. So the best way to consider um, preparation and, and a cybersecurity strategy or a risk management strategy is holistically. Uh, you want to think about the entire enterprise or the entire ecosystem or, or threat protect surface in a way that a bad actor is going to think about it, not in where, the way that we prioritize the ecosystem, but in the way that someone who doesn't care so much about the rules or the processes that we've set in place, how are they going to try to, um, you know, find vulnerabilities and impact a system in a negative way? From your standpoint, um, obviously, right, the threat is constantly changing, which means the risks are constantly changing. Um, what are the biggest uh, threats, right? I mean, there's still a lot of concern that as the war, Russia's war uh, in Ukraine continues to go badly, the Russians are going to lash out more. There are more concerns, obviously, that as the relationship between Beijing and Washington get more contain contentious, the Chinese are uh, going to get uh, somewhat more aggressive uh, as well, as we've occasionally seen. And then, of course, there's the North Koreans, you know, shaking people down all the time and the Iranians uh, acting up all the time, right? What? How is, how is that threat? picture changing from, from your standpoint? Um, well, it's consistently changing. And I think one of the biggest threats that we face, or two of the biggest threats that we face, is um, under-resourcing uh, or deprioritizing this um, as, a, as a threat vector, and also um, just fatigue. I mean, when you're consistently having all of your threat or all of your protect services being prodded by bad actors, it's very easy to, um, you know, refocus your attention in one area and 
lose sight of a goal in another area or, or just overall fatigue in general. I mean, it, it's very hard to stay vigilant against persistent threats and attacks. So making sure that organizations and entities are prioritizing this and, and they're putting the um, you know, the professionals or, or manpower in place in order to continue to work these um, these threats and then prioritizing them from a financial standpoint, you know, making sure that the budget is there. So it's not an afterthought, you know, just a line item on a budget that can easily be cut, but consistently prioritized as a critical threat vector. I think those are really, really important um, considerations. And those are largely the biggest threats as opposed to any specific type of cyber attack or anything like that, because it is an ever-changing threat environment right. and we have to stay nimble. Uh, and uh, right. I mean, there's only so long when, you know, people are shields up as they've been uh, for the last, uh, you know, year and a half. Uh, yeah, folks, that's exactly right. Folks, folks start, uh, start uh, getting uh, tired, mm-hmm. you know, even in the national cyber uh, strategy and something that you and I have discussed a lot has been, uh, you know, public private partnerships, um, whether it's, you know, um, retired Admiral Mike Rogers, who joins us and talks about it, or Jim Lewis from CSIS, uh, or Mark Montgomery from the Solarium uh, Commission and the Foundation uh, for the Defense of Democracies, right? I mean, everybody is always talking about uh, what, you know, the the need for greater public-private partnerships, again, as outlined in the National Cyber Strategy. Uh, but then people have, you know, say like, well, we're not doing the right kind of public partner, public-private partnerships. Um, and and then there are public public private uh, uh, public public partnerships that we've got to think about as well. From your standpoint, what are the best examples of successful public private partnerships that are worth emulating? Because this is something that people always kind of call for, but it's not. It's very loosely defined about what a successful partnership looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also. I think I think it's really important also to think of the goals of any of those public and private partnerships, and then weigh. The performance of that partnership against the goal that was, you know, that was stated at the beginning, like, did they do what they said they were going to do? So the best examples are the ones where you're going to have clear contracts and enforcement of terms, but also allowing some flexibility with deadlines and shared responsibility and creative ways of staying on budget and deadlines. So, you know, borrowing from the commercial example of uh, flexibility and, you know, sometimes having to change streams or change the tactic in the middle of a, of a project versus on the government side that tends to be a bit more stringent, um, you know, with the way that things are documented. Um, you know, I know the government, they tend to prefer, you know, ironclad contracts where everything is explicitly stated at the beginning, but the private sector doesn't always function that way. In fact, it often doesn't function that way. So allowing that level of creativity and uh, moving at the speed of business versus at the speed of government, I think is going to really uh, provide a much stronger partnership um, and maintaining a commitment to falling back on the strong partnership between the entities, even if some of the contracting deadlines um, shift or if some of the deliverables or or the initially stated um, line items have to change during that. But, you know, borrowing the the rigidity of the government contracting and being uh, forced to stay on a a certain deadline is also really good for the private sector. So, um, you know, not getting too flexible or, or getting caught up in chasing the next shiny object, which can sometimes happen on the private side. Um, and maintaining that it's a marathon and not a sprint and keeping your eye on that final stated goal um, versus some things that can typically impact the commercial side or the private sector in a way that don't. So say, you know, revenue or, or shifting goals of the, of the operation itself. Um, and then finding creative ways to rebound when there's obstacles, because there's always going to be obstacles on any long-term effort. So 
making sure that there's that creativity and flexibility to overcome those instead of um, you know, setting the whole project aside or letting it derail the, the stakeholders. Uh, so when you look at private, right? I mean, every um, the supply chains, obviously, in the wake of the pandemic, um, uh, the pressures uh, because of Russia's war on, on Ukraine, um, this drive to sort of decouple, if you will, from the Chinese have, have highlighted all manner of supply chain uh, challenges uh, and supply chain security. And, and when we've oftentimes had classified breaches, they tend not to be at the prime contractor level, but actually at a subcontractor level, right? So the, the view of a cyber ecosystem is also a private-private partnership issue, right? And responsible big companies work with smaller ones, uh, but yet smaller companies sometimes are not making that necessary investment. What are the right kinds of private-private partnerships we need to see whether and I, and I want to get to sort of decision making in a minute, but what, what are the kind of partnerships we need to see prime, mid-tier, you know, prime to mid-tier, mid-tier to smalls uh, and across the board to make sure that we're sort of collectively, you know, that all boats are rising ultimately in, in this endeavor? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a really idealistic view um, and, and very optimistic one. I think you know, in a perfect world, the the perfect private-private partnership would be everyone, you know, sharing information and, and working to backfill their technological gaps or their security gaps. I mean, that gets to the heart of the national cybersecurity strategy, right? So shifting away from smaller agencies and, um, you know, shifting the responsibility back to those, uh, you know, as it states that are most capable and best positioned. So you think about the larger entities and the better resourced entities taking care of the individuals um, and the small businesses or, or the ones who are, um, you know, I always think about the mom and pop shops where their their grandson has set up their Wi-Fi for them because their their mission of their operation is to deliver, you know, this one particular widget for a government contract or something along those lines. And so cybersecurity may be in a blind spot for them. Um, and then the other part of the um, cybersecurity strategy that we've been talked about is the, the realignment and incentivization of long-term investments. So I think if you see uh, the government rewarding that sort of behavior where folks who maybe are having to reprioritize resources in order to invest in their cybersecurity strategy, you're going to see some sort of reward or hopefully see some sort of reward coming back from the government um, in a way that either prioritizes the contracting phase or um, something along those lines that, that shows that the investment was worthwhile. And, um, you know, you can't necessarily have like a financial kickback, but something that would move them along. Uh, maybe with a prioritization and competing for government responses or government contracts. Um, and a, a better way to incentivize stepping away from the attestation only programs that we've seen in the past, because those don't always work. And right. um, whether it's through malice or intentional, you know, misdirection uh, of information or somebody who really genuinely believes they've provided the right answers, but they just haven't, you know, their, maybe their cybersecurity and risk management framework is falling short and they don't realize it. Um, I like to think that that's, you know, where most of the errors are coming from, but there's always that room for manipulation of information or, or providing misinformation just at the hope of, you know, winning business um, or wanting to continue to serve the government and recompete contracts and those sorts of things. So private-private, um, it, it's a really, really sticky area because you've also got, you know, protection of IP and businesses not necessarily want to communicate their, their vulnerabilities and and share that. But the idea would be filling those security gaps, making sure that entities are partnering with um, companies like ours 
you know, they can help um, secure their supply chains or secure their vulnerabilities, particularly the ones that they may not even know exist, because you don't want that to come to light post-incident or when it's too late and they've already either created risk or, or they've suffered some sort of a major incident. Do, do you need um, more of a regulatory framework or approach to this ultimately? Um, I think that the government regulatory framework is pretty comprehensive. Uh, in fact, I think sometimes you have so many regulations that uh, participants aren't 100% sure how to comply and they want to. Um, right. You know, they want to be safe. They don't want to be the ones that are bringing risk into this environment. I think. Um, maybe it would be better to focus on education and understanding of why the regulations are necessary, which ones apply um, specifically right. to uh, private entities, how to comply, and you know what's the path forward, and what does it mean to create a really robust third-party risk management strategy, um, you know, and how do they know once it's documented that they're focusing on the right things and that they are ready, um, you know, that they're continuously monitoring, they're staying vigilant against advanced persistent threats, and that they do have a recovery plan in place if something does take place. I'm not going to ask you about uh, CMMC, uh, but again, right? I mean, that's you know part of uh, the 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 challenges. You know, how do you uh, right? I mean, get to a place where you have some degree of uh, you know uh, be better certification and understanding what everybody's risks, uh, vulnerabilities, and 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 capabilities are. Um, so a lot of the pressure falls on uh, companies. Uh, some invest uh, a lot and robustly. Uh, others have a tendency of trying to invest, uh, you know, or you, you know, get uh, hit uh, and then you start to invest a lot of money, right? Banks used to be uh, pretty bad at this. They got hit a lot and now they invest massive amounts of money and have become uh, cyber leaders uh, overall, Andrea. I mean, what's What's the right kind of approach and how do you need and how do companies, whether they're big or small, need to think about investment uh, in risk mitigation sort of top to bottom? And I want to ask you a little bit about programs uh, as well, right? Because the level of investment might not be as, as consistent there either. But, but talk to us from a company standpoint and how folks should be thinking about it. Well, I think the, there's no, there's too late, but there's never going to be too early, right? So the time to start thinking about when to invest in, in risk management and um, cybersecurity strategy and policy and framework for an entity or organization is as soon as you can. Um, and then when starting to think about how to invest and you know what the dollar figure should be for that organization, it, it's going to have to be a lot of weighing the risk versus uh, the reward, I suppose, or you know what is the cost of an incident or a failure or um, an inability to deliver, you know, an on-time delivery with a government project. So, you know, it's it's one thing to say it's a potential, you know, delay of a few weeks and it's, it's you know, not a huge deal versus massive negative business, uh, you know, reputational impact or loss of life or critical data failure that, that jeopardizes national security. So all of those things need to be considered when you're, when you're talking about the cost of investment up front. Um, and, like I said, there's nothing, there's no such thing as too early, but there's definitely too late. So in considering what that recovery is going to look like and how can you go back out and extrapolate what data was lost or the, the ripples of negative impact that can be lasting um, or when an entity or, or company like SolarWinds or Colonial Pipeline, when their names are inexorably linked to breaches and incidents, right? So it's not just something that happened and you recover from it and it's an operational failure or maybe some loss of data. 
you're talking about something that becomes a case study and, and that name and that brand becomes synonymous with a cyber breach. And when you're talking about something where safety is involved or human lives are involved, you absolutely don't want your name tied up in that if for no other reason than the business impact. But um, there's a lot of things to consider. And I think that those are not necessarily thought about at the very beginning because there is the chance that you run the risk of overhardening the surface or um, you know, redirecting resources that are needed to deliver on the core operational mission. And right. so cyber feels like an afterthought, but just like a home invasion, you know, getting an alarm system installed the day after a break-in, it might help for peace of mind, but it really didn't do anything to protect you. And it doesn't do anything to, um, you know, help with the recovery. It just sort of helps, I guess, prevent the next incident. But at that point, especially when you're thinking about a cyber incident, it's, it's difficult to measure or track how long the intrusion has been going on, how long the incident was taking place and and the level of impact, how much data was breached or, or you know, how many dollars are going to be lost because of this or, or what type of program impact does it have? We talked about uh, last year with the F-35 program. Um, you know, what did that halt and delivery really mean um, overall to the government contract? And then what did it do to the businesses that were involved? Right. Let me ask you, you know, you, you raised uh, a, a program. And programmatically, uh, we, we talked to Air Force uh, Secretary Frank Kendall uh, at uh, the Reagan Forum late last year, and we talked, um, you know, he was our uh, cyber guest. And one of the things that he discussed was the importance of thoughtful contracting and actually through life focus on uh, cyber, right? Not have it be an initial thing. Uh, you know, we've heard from Chris Cleary, uh, the Navy's uh, uh, cyber director, on, on the importance of making that through life cyber investment. And every once in a while, you know, we, we don't make that kind of investment. What's what's the right way uh, to think about this, right, from the founding of a program through test and evaluation all the way to fielding and beyond? What's what's the right kind of approach to be taking from a programmatic standpoint? And 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 do you do you see a change in how people are approaching this? Because the cybersecurity of a weapon system is as important as any other feature, right? It is it is a war fighting. Uh, uh, attribute. That's exactly right. So uh, life processes and considering, you know, the maturation of the program and making sure that the strategies are staying lockstep um, with it as it grows and, and seeing it through maturation and holistically. So again, considering the things that um, may not necessarily be thought of as vulnerabilities um, at the very beginning. So, you know, when you're collecting individual data, and uh, storing that data, and it's all unclassified because it's in the, the very nascent stages of a program. But maybe once that data is coalesced, right, it becomes greater than the sum of its parts, and it needs a special type of consideration or security. Um, you know, also bringing in cross-functional teams as early as possible, because everybody's going to have a different vantage point or a different view or a different set of priorities. And so because of that, they can bring up additional risks that might exist in someone else's blind spot. Um, and then as a program matures, the cybersecurity or any other risk strategy should mature as well. And as the environment around it matures, you know, these things aren't happening in a bubble. So the world around these programs is changing. And so this strategy needs to be adaptive and, and as informed uh, as the program itself. And, and it needs to continue to be a priority as opposed to, um, you know, like you said, something that's addressed in the beginning and maybe addressed at certain benchmarks or at the end of right. the program at delivery. Um, and, you know, continuously monitoring the, the program and the strategy and the threat environment is incredibly important because if you don't, what you have is a security snapshot in time, 
maybe at the very beginning. So you understand, you know, at the outset of this program, this was our security posture and, you know, everything seemed fine and it, and it was doing really well, but as the threat environment matured um, or the program matured, or like I said, that data, um, you know, began to take on a life of its own, it doesn't really matter what it looked like on day one. It matters what it looks like, you know, a few years into the program. Um, I'm uh, reminded as as much as um, I, I think uh, you and others from the Fortress team have been great in sort of focusing everybody's attention on uh, H-bombs, S-bombs, uh, which is uh, hardware and software bills of origin uh, and materials, something which is codified actually in the national cyber uh, strategy about the importance of, of getting after those was just at South by uh, Southwest, where people also were talking about F-bombs, right? Firmware uh, bills of origin uh, and materials as well, even though I think that that kind of falls into the software side of things, but I understand what, what they mean by that. What's kind of a holistic approach to be taking, uh, Andrea, from the software side of things to the hardware side of things? And, and yeah, I mean, even the firmware uh, side of the equation, right? I mean, things that you can't maybe as much control, but could still constitute, um, you know, a significant vulnerability, especially when it comes to commercial uh, ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it matters because you have to know, you know, just like with hardware, and there was an early emphasis on hardware because it's tangible, you know, we can see it. And so I think it's easier to understand how hardware can be manipulated um, you know, people understand a malicious chip or, um, you know, an additional um, component that's going to send signals back and, you know, ping it back to an IP address uh, with, you know, foreign origin or something along those lines. So just like that, software and firmware have to undergo the same level of scrutiny so that you really understand what this device or this software is doing within your system, what type of data is flowing through it, what type of vulnerabilities um, can be introduced into the system because of pre-existing firmware, you know, if you buy an asset, then the asset itself is deemed safe, but you're not 100% sure how the firmware is operating within that environment, you can't really sign off on the full device itself. It's, it's very, very important to understand exactly how that device is performing, what information it's processing, what information it might be transmitting, and how a bad actor could potentially use that device. Or, or that data. What what are the elements of this ecosystem, especially at a time, again, the national cyber strategy says we've got to be doing a better job in sharing this kind of threat details uh, of, of uh, you know, a very fast moving uh, and pervasive threat that goes across the entire national ecosystem, right? Well beyond national, purely on national security, something seemingly innocuous and innocuous and commercial could actually have significant national security impacts. What's the way to think about this ecosystem? Well, I think it's really important um, that when you're thinking about the ecosystem and, and solutions and how to move forward and, and, and function at a really high rate and have this robust um, approach to third-party risk management or, or the risk management framework in general in response to the, the cybersecurity strategy or just for an organization as well, it's, it's really important that a solution be comprehensive um, so it can't just, you know, focus on one small aspect of risk. It, they really need to widen the aperture to focus on, um, you know, hardware and software bills of materials and um, be able to ingest various types of data and then coalesce that into one single pane of glass through which to view an entity's risk. But I think it's also incredibly important that this solution be operationalized. So it's great to have all of this data, but if you have to have a, um, a team of experts that doesn't interact with the rest of the operation and they're the only ones that can 
then can you know understand this very codified and rigid risk data, it's not going to do any good to the organization. So it has to be operationalized in a way that people understand it. They understand how to read it. They understand how to use it, and they understand what it means to their organization. Um, you know, we're we're very proud of the tools that we have here at Fortress that we're able to provide that type of a solution um, that creates a, a tactical approach to risk management. That, like I said, it's operationalized. And it's not just providing the risk data, but it's showing how to use that and apply that to the organization to make it safer, to um, fold it into the day-to-day risk management and threat monitoring plans, as well as the recovery plans, uh, and then work with the stakeholders at every level of an organization to understand the risk posture, how to reduce their risk overall, uh, and how to make their program safer. Because at the end of the day, that's what that's what we're doing here at Fortress, and, and that's what we're trying to do for the government is, you know, create a safer environment and uh, reduce risk overall. Andrea, thanks so very much. Always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Really uh, appreciate it uh, and look forward uh, to having you back on uh, again soon. Thanks so very much and look forward to seeing you next week at uh, Navy League. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation and I will see you next week at Navy League.